do that. We appreciate that greatly. Um, sometimes it is the small things that matter most. Tiny little details that can affect uh, the outcome of something very greatly. During the first Gulf War, um, Iraqi missiles that were known as scuds were a constant threat to the U.S. and its allies. The best defense against those was a missile system called the Patriot System, designed to intercept and detonate an incoming scud in flight. And as it turned out, there was a software error in the Patriot System. A timekeeping routine wasn't invoked as often as it should have been. And the longer the system was powered on, waiting to intercept a threat, um, the greater the time error was that was accrued by the internal clocks. The solution was to occasionally reboot the system, and that would reset the clock discrepancy. Unfortunately, occasionally was never well defined, and on February 25th, 1991, a Patriot that was fired to intercept an incoming Scud had been running for over 100 hours. And in that amount of time, its clock was off by about a third of a second. Doesn't sound like much, does it? A third of a second. Unfortunately, an Iraqi missile would travel over half a kilometer in that half a second, and so the Patriot was nowhere near where it needed to be to detonate that missile, and 28 American military personnel lost their lives when the Scud missile reached its target at a barracks in Saudi Arabia. A similar story to that, in 1999, NASA and Lockheed Martin collaborated on a spacecraft known as the Mars Climate Orbiter. And both NASA and Lockheed, after the fact, were later found to have been inconsistent in their use of units. Instruments on the spacecraft were reporting values in um, force pound seconds when they should have been reporting in newton seconds. Now, you don't need to know physics to appreciate the colloquial version of that, which is that one spoke metric and one spoke standard. Uh, standard units, and so they were off by uh, a significant margin, and the spacecraft was ultimately lost as it was destroyed by the Martian atmosphere, not anywhere near where the team thought it was supposed to be. And so, likewise, these small but significant and important errors uh, that we've illustrated this morning, Christology is a lot like that. When we think about who Jesus is, and when we think about the nature of the Son of God, it's important that we get it right. In the New Testament city of Colossae, errors began to spring up concerning this. And when the Apostle Paul was alerted to those problems, he personally addressed those concerns with a letter. And the result is one of the most beautiful and informative Christological passages in all the Scripture. Paul had never been to Colossae. It was probably the least significant location to ever receive a letter from the Apostle but when the founder of the church, Epaphras, told Paul about what was going on there, Paul knew that the doctrinal problems had to be dealt with decisively. We suspect that Paul was already writing Ephesians under house arrest, and Colossians contains a lot of the same material. About a quarter of Ephesians is repeated in Colossians. And at the end of Colossians, he tells the church, he tells these these beloved brothers and sisters at Colossae, he says, listen, when you've read this letter, send it on to the church of the Laodiceans. And in turn, you should be looking for a letter to come from that direction, which we think might have possibly been Ephesians. And I mention all of this in order to point out that even after Paul 
took the time to personally address a letter specifically to that little congregation because this issue was so important. He also pointed them towards, you need to find other sources. I'm sending even more sources of correct doctrine for you to examine and inform your opinion and your thoughts about who Christ is. That's how important this is. That's how important it is. If we get the nature of Christ wrong, if we are in error about who Christ is and what Jesus is like, it matters very little what else we get right. That was true in Colossae, and it's true for us. And so, as we think about Advent today, this, uh, this Advent Sunday morning, what better place to find out? Who is this baby in the manger? How is any of this possible? And if God has indeed taken on flesh... What are the implications for us? So this morning I have six important truths for us that Christ, uh, about Christ that Paul points out in these verses, verses 15 through 20, um, which Brother Woody and Sister Debbie read for us uh, just a few moments ago. And so uh, let's look together beginning in verse 15. First, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God the Father. Even as I say that, I fear that the statement is just a little underwhelming. We have to remember that throughout the whole Old Testament, we are told that no man can see God. No man. In Exodus, God says, you may not look upon me and live. In Isaiah, the prophet saw the Lord's throne and he said, woe unto me. Why? Why would he say that? Haven't you ever felt like, boy, if I could just see God, I would just feel like I was the most blessed thing ever. No, you wouldn't. And neither did the prophet. The prophet looked upon the throne and he said, woe unto me for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And so it's a huge statement to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does Paul mean by that? Well, the word that he chooses to use here is icon. Icon. In the setting of the New Testament, icon had to do with a stamp that produced an image, like on a coin. Our culture is made familiar with that term probably more through computers. We click on the icon. When computers switched from typed commands to uh, picture-driven interfaces, graphical interfaces, a file or a folder or even an entire program was represented by its icon on the screen. And so you click that icon and you know what you're going to get. But the usage of the New Testament, icon means a mirror-like representation. If you think about that stamp, everything that happens on that stamp happens in the final product. When that imprint is made, it's a complete transfer, and so it's a mirror-like representation. So don't think of a, a cute little picture of something else. Think of a full, complete, and perfect representation. Paul goes on to say in the next chapter of Colossians, verse 9, as a matter of fact, chapter 2, verse 9, that in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's no wonder then that in John 12, Jesus said, whoever sees me has seen the one who sent me. And in John 14, when Philip asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father, Jesus said, whoever seen me has seen the Father. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the, get this, exact imprint of his nature. Now the heresy that was creeping up at Colossae uh, is not specifically named, 
Uh, we think it may be a forerunner of something like the heresy that's known as Gnosticism, but there seem to be some components here that we can tease out, uh, we can kind of understand based on what, call, what Paul seems to emphasize. There seems to be components of legalism, of angel worship, uh, the desire to know or experience mysterious cosmic forces or powers, secret spiritual knowledge, things of this nature. And in this letter, Paul's effort to correct all of those things, isn't it amazing? You, you know, he, he says a lot more about all those things. But it's, it's incredibly forceful to me. It comes across as such a, strong, uh, such a strong word that his strategy, Paul's strategy for correcting all of those things is to just talk about Jesus. It's just to talk about who Jesus is and what he's like before he does anything else. So he says this, Jesus Christ is the icon of God. He is the mirror-like representation, the exact imprint. Let me remind you that Jesus is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. It's as if Paul was saying, you want to get nitpicky about the law? Legalism has some footing in the church at Colossae? Look to Christ. He's the perfect fulfillment of that law. You can't look at anything. You want to talk about the law? You can't talk about anything greater than Jesus. You want to worship something that's wonderful and beautiful and supernatural? Look to Christ. He's Lord over all those angels, and He's whom they exist to serve. Are you hungry for knowledge of the mysterious? Fathom this mystery. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Are you concerned with forces and powers? You know what? God has put all things in subjugation under His feet. And Jesus Himself said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You want power? Look no further than Jesus Christ. So whatever it is that you're looking for, Christ is it, and He's more than it, and He's better than it. So Paul is telling them, stop wrestling with all these lesser things. Be satisfied with Christ and His supremacy. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Paul goes on past the icon, past the image to the firstborn. And this statement has been the source of, of a little confusion through the years. What does it mean to be born? What does it mean by firstborn? Is Christ born in the sense that he's a part of creation? Well, we know the answer to that must be no. That's not what Paul means at all. Firstborn does not mean born in the sense of being created or having a beginning that is, that there was a moment when Christ began to exist. That's not the case at all. Let that sink in for a minute. There was never a time when he was not. Amen. He's eternal. And so firstborn doesn't mean he began in the manger. It doesn't mean that he was created in the manger. Um, the Greek word here is uh, prototokos uh, in the Greek. It, it can refer to the chronological order of birth, but that's not all it means. It's more accurate to understand uh, this, this um, uh, prototokos as the firstborn as a position or a rank. It's common in the Bible. If we look back to Esau and Jacob, who came chronologically first? Esau. Who proved to be the firstborn? Jacob. Right? The one who held the right of inheritance. Israel is called God's firstborn though there were many nations that came before them chronologically. In Psalm 89, God says that He will make David His firstborn. 
his firstborn, although David was certainly not the first one born in his family. So it doesn't always mean the chronological order. Firstborn is a position, and it means preeminence. Maybe preeminence isn't as helpful for us. We don't really speak that way. Um, the closest thing I could think of that we use in, in any kind of language where we think of eminence is like your eminence to, to someone of high nobility. Eminence just means fame or renowned. And so if one is preeminent, it means that their renown, their importance, their fame, their greatness supersedes all others. It comes before. A good way to think of it is superiority. Paul is going to touch on this again in verses 17 and 18, that Jesus is before all things, not only meaning that he existed before them chronologically, as we've said, that's certainly true, but because he has preeminence over all creation. He's before it in rank. And he is the firstborn from among the dead, not only because he's the first one to fully experience uh, a resurrection body and life after physical death, but because he's the forerunner of all of us who hope to be resurrected. He is the most significant of all those who will come after. So he is preeminent. He is firstborn. Thirdly, Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all things. This is verses 16 and 17. He is the creator of all things, and Paul lists things that I think are particularly significant when we think about this Colossian heresy, what it tempted those people to value. Look what Paul says, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he is before all of those things, and he created all of those things. So think with me again about this temptation to worship angels, to have some secret knowledge, to experience the mysterious and, and spiritual and powerful. Paul is arguing, don't, don't worship stuff. That's all any of that is. It's stuff. It's created things. And that's not to say that there aren't some good created things. There certainly are, but they are just things. And Paul is begging the Colossians to save their worship and their concern and their longing for the one who's the creator of all those things in the first place. He is preeminent. He is superior. He is the creator of all other things. Verse 16 tells us that the creation is possible because of Jesus. That's the through him part. When we think all the way back to the beginning, it was Christ who was there. It was Christ who brought about and then that last phrase is so important. We might gloss over it if we weren't reading carefully. It's through him and it's for him. All of these things that are made, it's not that he's superior to it all because he made it all. That's certainly true. But he's superior to every created thing and it all exists to serve him. It all exists for his purpose and his purpose is to glorify himself. That means all the stuff that you think you have is really His, and it exists for His purpose, not yours, not mine. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that covers it all. That includes everything, and it includes you and me. Whether we like it or not, we are a part of this creation that would not exist without Jesus, and we exist for His glory, and He will get His glory from us, my friends. One day, one way or the other, whether we are willing or unwilling, he will have his glory. And look now at verse 17. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What an incredible, beautiful, wonderful truth. It isn't just that Jesus is the reason for all these things, and it isn't just that He created them, although that certainly makes Him worthy of our thanksgiving and praise and adoration. It isn't just that they're there for Him, showcasing His glory to everyone who can observe it. There's more, Paul says, in Him all things hold together. He's holding it all together. That's such a comfort to me. I don't know what you might have come in here with this morning, what problems you might be carrying with you or what worries or concerns or challenges you might be facing, but hang on to this thought in the face of whatever worry or stress or anxiety you may have for some needed comfort. Across the 93 billion light years of observable universe, every fragment, every atom is held together because Christ says so. He is that kind of powerful. And I would just mention that it's not some gargantuan effort on his part by any means. It's just because it's what he wants. And if he stopped desiring it even for an instant, it would all fall apart. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I just love that. You think about something stressful and you think, what am I going to do about this? Wait a minute, wait a minute, just stop for a minute. Every atom in this universe is radiating for His glory. All of it is held together because He wants it to be here. He can handle it. He can handle it. It's a small thing in light of His goodness and graciousness to us. Fourthly, Christ is the head of the body, the church. That's verse 18 if you're following along. I hope you are. Paul moves us from the broad picture of the universe down to the more focused scope of the church. It might be good for us to remember what the church means. Our modern understanding of church is just so different. The meaning of church is is clouded. We we tend to think of denominations and buildings and, and programs and conventions and worship styles and all sorts of things that are just kind of far removed from the first century. The first century Greek word is ekklesia, the called out ones. It just means the grouping either of a local body like the church in Colossae or the church at Ephesus, or of all believers everywhere, the church universal. Of all believers everywhere, this this church is people. So we have to kind of stop and remember that for a minute. It's not programs or ministries or worship styles, all those different things, buildings, get, get those things kind of out of our thinking for a moment. The church is people, and they're called as individuals to different roles. They're given different natural abilities and talents. They all have different skill sets that can be used, and they each have different spiritual gifts that come from God. And elsewhere in his letters, Paul has referred to people with those different talents and gifts and abilities as members of the body. He calls the church the body. And he tells us all, all these different people, all these different gifts, they're, they're just different kinds of members of the body, the head, the foot, the hand, uh, the hand, the foot, the ear, the eye. All of them are necessary. All of them carry out different roles. And one is not more valuable than the other. They're just all slightly different. Until we get to Jesus, where Paul says, 
Christ is the head. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the one who decides and directs and purposes all the other members, all the people of the church and their abilities and skills and talents and gifts, all their stuff. It's all subject to Him. It's all at His disposal, and it's all for His glory, for His name. Head is kephale, and it's not only used literally as the head of a man or a beast, but also metaphorically as one with authority. This is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, where he says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So there's a picture there, this beautiful picture of serving authority, loving authority, not one of domineering or pulling rank or forcing decisions. Paul goes on to say the primary way that the relationship between Christ and the church is exemplified is that Jesus loved the church and gave his life for her. He loved the church by giving himself up. And so it isn't anybody's church. We tend to think that way too, right? We think of a church, we think of the leadership. It's just kind of, I think, just normal human way of thinking. But it's not somebody's church. It's not that person who thinks it's their church because they were here when it was founded. It's not this person that thinks that they're the biggest tither. It's not the person who um, has been a deacon the longest, or it's the pastor's because he thinks he's the CEO. The church doesn't belong to anybody else. It's Christ who's the head. The only one who died for her is Jesus, so that's the only one she belongs to. And so Paul revisits this preeminence issue. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Right here in this verse that contains head of the church— he goes right back to preeminent. And I think that's grouped here as a, as a complete thought. It's, it's not an unneeded repetition. Paul is saying Christ is first in the church, just like he's first to be resurrected, just like he's first among all creation. He's first in everything, everything. And I would just give us this warning and this reminder, what happens to churches that forget that Christ is the head? What happens to churches that forget that he's preeminent? That all that they gather for and give together to support and work together in ministry to accomplish, it's all for Him. And if it isn't all for Him, if Christ is not at the center of it all, well, I'll tell you what happens is you just don't really have a church anymore. You have something. You have a group of people and they're unified by something else and they're doing work for some other purpose, but it's not really really a church anymore if Christ isn't the head and if he isn't the center of all that's happening. And then finally we come in verse 19 to what may be the weightiest point of all in this passage. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's such an important point. When we consider Christ, we remember that we're talking about one person with two natures. He isn't part God and part human. If I could just make that distinction. I remember my early, early years as a Christian trying to understand the nature of Christ and being taught about Christ. It's not 50-50. It, it, it's not like some Greek God who's half man. That's Hercules, not Jesus. That's fiction, not reality. The reality is he's 100% God and 100% man. If you're saying, how can that be? Welcome to the party. We've been trying to figure that out for a really long time. 
What we have to do is just come to terms with what the Scripture says, and that's what this segment is, is really all about. For centuries, theologians have wrestled with the mystery of His nature, and isn't that good? Wouldn't we be, or shouldn't we be disappointed if saying God became a man was, well, that's easy to explain. That wouldn't say very much about the nature of God, would it? We wouldn't want it to be easily explained away. And so to see the complexity of what we're dealing with here, I want to take you to a couple different important cross-references. If, you, if you'd like to turn with me, I would invite you to do that. Let's consider first some of the writings of John. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. That's appropriate, I think. John was an eyewitness to Jesus. On earth, there was no one closer to Christ than John. And we can begin with John's very first words. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we skip down to verse 14, and we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know the Word, what John means by the Word is Jesus, because of verse 14, the Word became flesh. We'll come back to that in just a minute, but if you'll flip over to another writing of John, flip towards the back of your Bible, 1 John, 1 John, we move from John's gospel book to his epistle letter, 1 John, again chapter 1, and again verses 1, and we'll read 2 as well, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, that would be Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus wasn't created in the manger. He is eternal. He didn't become a person on that first Christmas. He's always been a person. And the clearest and best statement is that He took on flesh. J.I. Packer said it this way, Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God, and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. In other words, just as we look at the Trinity and we say, how could it be? How could it be one God in three persons? What a beautiful mystery to fathom. Just like that, we look at Jesus and we say, how can it be one person in two natures? The union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. John says, these verses that we've just read, from John 1 and 1 John 1. John says, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. That's an unimaginable thing. Now, it's a veiled glory in some mysterious way, but that's, that's amazing that we could see it and we could live it's one of the parts of the incarnation that's a, a beautiful mystery. And in 1 John, John tells us that which was from the beginning, we saw it with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. And the Word is life. 
That word was from the beginning. That word was with the Father. That's the word that has been made manifest. What does that mean? Made manifest. It means it's taken on, it's taken on flesh. It's become touchable, concrete, and tangible. In our cross-references here, let's shift from John to Paul. If you look at one last cross-reference with me, look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, famous passage that we look at when we think about the incarnation, we think about what it is that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6 through 7, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. One of the most perilously complex tasks of a Christian theologian is to try to define exactly what is meant by this word, emptied. Right here in this verse, what is meant by emptied? On the one hand, We have to acknowledge that Jesus cannot be said to be lacking in anything in his eternal pre-incarnate state. He's not missing anything. Likewise, he absolutely cannot become any less God than he was before the incarnation. You have Jesus who's not fully God. You got big, big theological problems. It's a it's a nightmare. You you can't do it. And so trying to figure out what does this mean that he emptied himself? Emptied what? What He can't change. What, What is happening here? And clearly when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus takes on some type of limitation or that in his perfect submission to the Father, he chooses not to exercise some of his divine ability or qualities. Like what? Well, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and yet Jesus chooses to lay down his life. In fact, he says, it's mine to lay it down. I lay it down. Nobody can take it from me. If I die, it's because I wanted to, effectively. Jesus lays down his life. He's an omniscient God, but he says of his second coming when asked that not even the angels nor the Son know the day, the hour. How can that be? He's limited himself just in the act of incarnation, just in becoming the the Word made manifest. He now occupies one particular space at one particular time. That's not a limitation that God has to deal with normally. And so we'll have to stop there and not try to to figure out all of the implications of Philippians 2 today. We could go on and on with that. But the, the reason that I've brought you here is to see this one particular aspect of this verse, this particular truth. He emptied himself by taking on. You see, I think, I think Paul gives us right there in Philippians 2, he, he gives us the answer to the what, what does it mean emptied? What, how did Christ empty himself? He, he says right here, he emptied himself by taking on the form of of a servant. He, he didn't become less, he became more. He, he didn't 
remove some part of the deity. He took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And so the Word, Jesus, always was. The Word always was God. The Word always was a person. He just wasn't always flesh. That's the key. Or as one early theologian put it, remaining what He was, He became what He was not. Well, that's, that's easy to remember. Maybe it's helpful. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. To borrow from Packer again, he says this beautifully, Jesus is not now God minus some element of His deity. Rather, He is God plus all that He made His own by taking manhood to Himself. He became what He was not. He took on the form of a servant. So let's turn our attention back to Colossians 1. Here in verse 19, Paul keeps it a bit shorter in this particular particular passage. He says, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness. Fullness. Pleroma. It's it's full. It's um, to be filled completely. One of the uses for this word uh, in, in, in early Greek was it was used of a ship ready to sail. So not just loaded with its cargo, but with the cargo, the supplies, the sailors, the soldiers, the rowers, the sailing tackle, all of it. It's, they're going to cut the line loose and it's gone. It's full. It's complete. It's whole. And so we remember that all that God was, with nothing missing or, or shelved away, He was pleased to dwell. And I just can't pass up pleased because I, I, I think it's such a different part of this than what we've seen in the other references that we've looked at. It's not just that He did it, He was pleased all the fullness of God. Other translations use it was the Father's good pleasure. It means pleasure or delight or approval. And so let's just put out of our minds by seeing that one little word there, let's put out of our minds that God squeezed Himself into a human body in great inconvenience or annoyance. Just, let's just put that away. That's, that's not right. And let's dismiss the erroneous thought that He laid aside enough of His attributes to become a man temporarily. That's not the incarnation of the Bible. And when you look at this and you think, well then, okay, well then how is it? We're running out of ways to describe it, Pastor Jared. We're running out of mental energy to, to even comprehend what we're talking about here. And to that I say, good. That's exactly Paul's point. Remember, Paul is expecting these truths to hit the Colossians a bit like a, well, like a Patriot missile. He's sending them into error to to let them be a force to, to captivate the minds and hearts of the Colossians with who Jesus is, with what God has done. It's to stun them into appropriate worship and adoration. What God has done in taking on flesh is a mystery that's worthy of all our thought and contemplation. It's worth our wonder. It's worth looking at with a slightly shaken head and saying, I'll never get my mind around it. Good. Good. Finally, we come to verse 20. 
What was all this for? What, what is going on here? Why does Christ come in this way? Christ is the reconciler of all things. Reconcile what? Reconcile for what purpose and how? Well, remember all the things that the Colossians were tempted to emphasize or worship. All of those things are part of a fallen, broken, corrupted world. All of those things are broken. They're no longer purely serving the purpose for which God made them. He made them that they would put His glory on display. He made us that we would do that. But no, the earth grows thorns. The nations rage. Human beings don't worship God. They rebel against Him. It's a broken place. And Christ is the great reconciler. And this is the point of His coming. We can look back all the way back to the garden and see that this was the plan all along. All the way back from the beginning, we see that even as the perfect world God made was being broken and judgment was being handed out, judgment was being put in place, God said that there would be enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. That the serpent would strike, but that he would be crushed beneath the heel of the one who was to come. And come he did. He did. He is the image. He is the firstborn. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He came to reconcile to Himself all things, this broken, fallen world and all that's in it, and that includes you and me. The reconciler. How is it that this Word made flesh, this Son of Man, would reconcile all things? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 20, he reconciles by making peace through the blood of his cross. Peace. Peace that we, the rebellers, could have with God. And how did, he, how did he do it? With the blood of his cross. He bought that peace. After all that we've talked about today, that in him the fullness of God the stamped image, the mirror-like image of God, the firstborn, the one with preeminence, all of those beautiful things that we've talked about. He laid His life down on the cross and paid the penalty that should have been ours. We should have received death for our sin, and He took it on Himself to buy reconciliation. The The one thing that we could not do, He did for us that we could be blameless before God. Blameless is a great word. If you just, it's outside the parameters of our text this morning, but it's right there. We might as well just kind of sneak down there and read it. Look at verses 21 and 22. And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why, Paul, why would he do that? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That is why Jesus came to die. Is that you today? Is it you? Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Let's not forget, these are people who have responded to the gospel news that they've heard. And so he says, you who once were alienated and hostile because they're not anymore. My question for you this morning would be, what about you? What about us? What about the 200 plus of us that are gathered here in this room today? Have you responded to what Jesus has done? 
Have you responded to how God made Himself available, sent His Son, did all of the beautiful, mysterious, wonderful things that we've talked about this morning, and then died taking the penalty for your sin? How have you responded? What's offered today is a free gift, the gift of reconciliation, the gift of peace with God, but you have to take it. It doesn't happen automatically. How do I do that, Pastor Jared? Well, you receive that gift by placing your trust in Christ alone, repenting of your sin and following after Him. That's how you do that. And you could do it even today. Advent is a time to consider the wonder of who God is and what He's done. He not only took on flesh and and came to earth, but He came to reconcile us to Himself. And I would just invite you, not only this morning, but all Advent long, all Christmas long, we've got another full week and then some, for you to think about this. If God did all that, will I remain unmoved? If God did all that, would I not trust Him? Would I not respond to what He's done? If that's you this morning, or at any other time between now and Christmas, I would say, come. Come to Him. There's no one better, no place better to place your trust. So with that, I'm going to invite you, if there are needs on your heart, to come. I'm going to invite the praise team to come and lead us in song. I'll be here at the front. And if there are needs on your heart, you come and we'll pray together. Lord, thank you for this word about Christ. Thank you for the beautiful picture that we see of the baby in the manger. It's so much more than what we sometimes think. Lord, we would pray that you would help us as we look at the small detail to see all the mystery and wonder and magnificence that you became flesh, that you took on the form of a servant and human likeness, and that you would die to take the punishment that we rightly deserved. Lord, may we respond rightly to you in worship. And for those who have not given their lives to you in response to that, that they would even today. We thank you, Lord. We pray you would move in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.